Hey, it's good to see you here this morning. We've been going through the book of Genesis and kind of uh, marching our way through, and um, we're in Genesis 4 and 5 here this morning. And as we've kind of laid out the book, we started off with an orientation to who God is, His powerful Word, that He's created us as image bearers, and that He kind of set us to work. And then in Genesis 3, there was a change. There was no longer orientation to who God was. There was disorientation to who we were. We saw the introduction of fear and guilt and shame and kind of this pain and childbearing and uh, struggle with the earth itself. And it brings us here to chapter 4, verses 17 through 532, where we see these, um, these long genealogies, these lineages that are kind of laid out for, for two of Adam's sons. And we might have this temptation to just kind of read right over these verses, right? We might just kind of bypass over the genealogies and say, it's just a bunch of Old Testament names. What's the point? But I think God has something for us here this morning, and I think as we dig into the Word, as we kind of look at God's Word and understand it all to be breathed out by God, we find that there's something for us here this morning. And so I want to pose a question to you as we begin. How do you know that you know God? How do you know that you know God? It's a simple enough question, isn't it? I mean, how is it that you are sure of your connection to God? Is it because of your right theology, the things that you believe? If you were to kind of take a theological exam, you would get a 90% or higher, and therefore you're right with God. Is it because of the good things you do? It's because you serve at the soup kitchen, or you, you come and clean the building, which, by the way, I really appreciate Is it because of the right things you do that you know that you're right with God? How do you know that you know that you're good with God or or God is good with you? Is it by your your spiritual heritage? Your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents who also followed Christ. And because of that, you're kind of this successor of this line of believers in Jesus. Is that what makes you know that you know that you're right with God? This morning, here's our big idea, and I want to kind of dig into this idea of how do we know that we know? How do we have this thing called assurance? And this is our big idea. Those who know God, walk with Him. Those who know God, they walk with God. That sounds kind of ethereal and out there, right? Really? Like, I go out on a walk and God's next to me? What is this? I want to dig into this this morning and and see the difference between two lines that kind of flow out of Adam. There's the line of Cain and and all of the things that kind of define what this godlessness kind of looks like. And then there's this line of Seth, those that God has revealed himself to. And as we get into this, I think we're going to see that that is exactly as we said here this morning, those who know God walk with God. And this becomes the means by which we assess whether we know God or not. We'll kind of bring greater clarity to this, but first, I want to dive into our first of two points this morning. See, Cain's descendants carry on his rebellion in chapter 4, verses 17 through 25. So look at chapter 4, verse 17 with me here this morning. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And when he built a city, he called the name of that city after the name of his son, Enoch. And to Enoch was born Irad, and to Irad fathered Methushael, excuse me, and Methushael fathered Methushael, 
And Methushael fathered Lamech. There's a whole list of baby names in there for you guys, right? See, Cain, his physical lineage is established. And what happens is Cain knows his wife there in verse 17. It's the same language as verse 1. And, and we see this long lineage that's carried out. Cain bears Enoch. And Enoch fathers Irad. Irad fathers Mahujael. And Mahujael fathers Methushael. Methushael fathers Lamech, and it kind of goes on and on. And what we see is in verse 18, I believe, or verse 17, uh, Cain builds the first city. Right? You're wondering where the first city came in, and of course, Cain was the one who builds it. And it's not um, without noting that Cain is the one who builds the first city. Remember last week we saw that God had driven Cain from the ground, that he no longer would, would uh, kind of be able to plant seed and draw from the ground. It would no longer yield its strength to him. So what he does is he gathers people together so that he can have everything he needs. He has all of these resources brought together. He makes the first city. But it's also worth noting that when God said to Adam, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, Cain in his obstacle to the purpose of God gathers people together rather than scattering throughout the earth. See, while Cain is multiplying, he is not scattering. He is not bearing out the image of God over all the earth. And what's most notable about this passage in chapter 4 is actually what happens next in, next in verses 19 through 24. See, Cain's spiritual heritage is kind of exemplified there in verse 19. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada. And the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jabal, who was the father of all those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. And Zillah also um, bore Tubal Cain, who was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. See, what happens is we have these certain lists of things that are kind of highlighted about this person, Lamech, right? And the first is Lamech is the world's first bigamist. He's married to two different women. This is in contrast to what happened with Adam. Adam uh, goes to sleep. God takes out the rib and makes Eve. And Adam sees her and says, whoa, man, right? And he says, no, this is bone of my bones. This is flesh of my flesh. We are one flesh together. And at the end of chapter 2, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, one to one. Well, Lamech looks and he says, why not have one to one to one, right? He becomes the world's first bigamist. It's interesting to note his wife's names. The, The name Ada actually means ornament. It's like something that's supposed to make something else look better, right? Ada's the world's first trophy wife, if you would. I like to think of myself as the world's first trophy husband. But Lomech has these trophy wives, right? He's there to kind of show off his power, his authority. It's not just that he's the world's first bigamist, that uh, Lamech had these earth-oriented kids in verses 20 through 22, Look at this lineage, this, the resume of Lamech's kids, right? Uh, Jabal was the father of domesticating animals. He's probably the first one to keep cattle. And so he's this rancher, right? 
uh, Jubal, which wouldn't it get confusing when you have Jubal and Jubal and Tubal and all these other things, right? Screwball, whatever else. <laughs> Jubal is the father of music. He's the father of all those who, who play the pipe and the, the lyre. His brother, Tubal-Cain, that came from the other wife, uh, was the father of all metalworking. He was a, a smith, right? And we can see the formation of culture kind of starts with this, uh, this lineage of Cain. Uh, driven from the face of the ground, they gather themselves into cities. They devote themselves to these tasks, whether it's metalworking or music or animals or whatever else. And they, they throw themselves into these things. These people become highly independent, don't they? There isn't any discussion of how they relate to God. This existence is completely secular. And they go about their life in their city being productive. But all of this production has its underbelly. Look what happens in verses 23 through 24. Cain's the first bigamist. He has these earth-oriented children. And Lamech is excessively violent in verses 23 and 24. Notice what Lamech tells his wives. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man, a boy, for striking me. He, he brags about his excessive violence. Specifically, if you look at the wording here, Lamech is proud of his one-upmanship. Somebody strikes me, I'm going to kill him. And when a young kid hits me, they're going to die. Also, it doesn't seem that Lamech is a person who minds the conventional limits of society, does he? He highlights that a young man, it's translated over 60 times in the Old Testament as boy or child. When a child hits him, he strikes him down. And all of this, if we miss this factor, that he's boasting to his wives to say, hey, this is who I am. And we take in just the, the off-kilterness of this. Just how off this person is. In verse 24, he boasts about his guilt before God. If Cain is avenged seven times, I am avenged 77 times. Just bold and blatant in his guilt before God. And we see the spiritual heritage of Cain kind of come out, don't we? See, here's the truth, is our godliness always ties us to earthly things. Our godlessness ties us to the earthly things. Last week we noted that Cain's action moved him further and further from God's presence. But the further we are from God's presence, the more we turn to earthly things around us. In Colossians chapter 3, and in verses 1 and 2, Paul says, hey, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And in verse 2, he says this, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Right? Paul has this distinction of being earthly minded, minded of the things around here, or being heavenly minded and focused on Christ. In verse 5 of that same chapter, he goes on to say, put to death what is earthly. We have this earthly orientation, and we are kind of prone to be preoccupied with earthly things. And when we are preoccupied with earthly things, uh, it likely means a dissatisfaction with heavenly things. 
I'd be willing to bet that if we were to kind of take a show of hands this morning and say, how many of us struggle with being oriented around earthly things? Many of us at some time or other have been uh, fixated with the earth, whether it's the physical material things or the relationships or whatever else, we become fixated upon these earthly things. And so we recognize this morning that we ourselves need grace. But there is an alternative, isn't there? We don't just, you know, have this situation where all we can do is is bind ourselves to the material things. And what God wants to show us is it's not just the line of Cain that's the only possibility for humanity. See, as we close out chapter 4 and as we walk into chapter 5, God lays out the possibility that man can once again know God. Man can somehow, despite his sinfulness, despite our orientation to sinful earthly things, we can be reoriented to God. And so our second point is that Seth's descendants carry on a faithful lineage. Look at verse 25 with me. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Notice two things happen here. First, Eve sees the birth of Seth as a gift from God. Verse 25 says it this way, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. In fact, the the name Seth actually means appointed. So God has appointed for Adam and Eve to bear another child to have more pregnancies, excuse me, more pregnancies. And so therefore, man, my voice really cracked there, didn't it? Excuse me. But verse 26 clues us into something else. Through Seth's lineage, people began to, what, call upon the name of the Lord. Verse 26 says it with clarity. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. See, while Cain is godless, he lives in an existence apart from God. He presses further and further into the material world. Seth's line is Godward. And what we see is this differentiation between these two brothers and their orientation. And so what we see in chapter 5, verses 1 through 32, is we see Adam's physical lineage laid out for us in all of its clarity. Some 13 or 14 generations are listed out for us here. And he starts in verses 1 through 3, and Moses introduces us to Adam's lineage. Look at verses 1 through 3 in chapter 5. This is the book of generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man while they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his, lone, in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. See, remember in Genesis 2-4, Moses introduces the story of creation by saying, these are the generations. And he uses the same language here in chapter 5, verse 1. And in verses 1 and 2, he kind of reintroduces us to this whole story that God has created man man and woman, male and female, in his own image. Like he kind of rewinds us back to chapter 1 and reorients us because he wants us to remember that Adam was made like God in some way. And then when, in, when Adam actually has children, in verse 3, he reminds us that Adam passes on that likeness to his son, Seth. 
And what happens through the remainder of this chapter is this kind of formula that happens. And we're going to kind of just dig into verses 6 through 8 to kind of pull out the formula of what happens there. In verses 6 through 8, we see this. We see, uh, first, there's this listing of years before they had children. When Seth lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. And the second part is that he births a child or he fathers a child. Actually, the woman normally births the child, just so everybody's clear on that. Yeah, thanks for clearing that up, Jason. Yeah. And then after that, there's the number of years that they've lived after the birth of that child. So Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. And then finally, they list out for us the total number of years. So thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died, right? And the formula really highlights two different things for us. It emphasizes the length of life of these individuals, that uh, eventually, uh, you know, God's going to limit the years of man to uh, 120 years. In fact, that'll happen in our, our next chapter in Genesis 6. But here, God shows us that these, these people live a ridiculously long time. I mean, some of them are up to like 950 years. Notice that, that not, God's not told us how long uh, those from Cain's line are living. That they're really emphasizing the longevity of life of these people who are trusting, calling on the name of the Lord. But specifically, when we do the math and we add up everything, we see this overlap. There's a, a slide here for us to look at that we see all of the lives. Uh, the top line, if you can't read it, is Adam. You see how long it extends, and then Seth and Enosh and Kenan, all the way down to Noah. And we realize when you look at this chart that, that Adam and Noah just barely miss each other by maybe 50 years. And that Adam's able to see five or six generations of his children's children's children. We recognize that the two fathers of humanity, Adam and Noah, they span nearly 2,000 years of human history. We recognize that God was gracious to these men to allow them to live so long as they were faithful to him. Not only does it emphasize length of life, it emphasizes the patriarchy. That is to say, it follows the line of men. Now, it's kind of hard for us sometimes to kind of reckon with this idea, right? Why aren't there more women in the Bible? Why, why does this lineage specifically follow the lines of men? I mean, were all of these men the firstborn from their household? We don't really know. But remember that the seed that was promised in Genesis 3.15 was decidedly male, right? You shall bruise his heel. And so we're following the, the lineage of men because we hope that someday the the male heir, the descendant from Eve that's going to crush the, the snake from the garden is going to come. And so this line zeroes in on the male line because we're all waiting for that snake killer to show up. But probably what's most important about these genealogies is not exactly the information that they list out. What's most important about these genealogies is actually the, the places that they stray away from this formula. And they highlight certain things about what happened to Seth's line that are, are really kind of digging into the goodness and mercy of God. See, there's interruptions to the formula that we want to pay attention to, specifically in verses 3, in verses 22 through 24, and then in verse 29. All of these divergences, they serve a purpose to kind of get us to zero in on the graciousness and mercy of God to the line of Seth. 
And so let's dig in. The first is in verses 1 through 3, where God's image continues through Adam's seed. In verse 3, the author writes this, He fathered a son in his own likeness after his image. See, after highlighting this kind of fall that happens, Adam sins, Eve sins, they fall, Uh, Cain kills Abel, there's this horrific sinfulness in all of humanity, we come back to chapter 5, and God reminds us, hey, the imago dei is still here, the image of God is still present, and it's still passed on from Adam through Seth, that now Adam is passing on this image bearing to his son, Seth. That is, the Imago Dei isn't lost because of sin. Isn't that God's grace? God doesn't strike off his image from the face of the earth. He allows Adam to have a son who bears the image of God just like he did. And his son bears the image of God. And his son bears the image of God. So we see our first issue in verse 3. The second thing we see in verses 22 through 24 is that God still walks with his people. Remember back in Genesis 3 where, where God used to walk in the garden in the cool of the day. Well, when we get to verses 22 through 24, we, we see this character, Enoch, who is described to us as one who walks with God. First, let's talk about verse 24, because this one's kind of weird, right? Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. What the heck happened to Enoch? Is it like, you know, where in the world is Enoch? Where in the world is Carmen Sandy? That's a 90s kid joke, right? How do we find Enoch? What happened to Enoch? Well, the language there in the, New, in the Old Testament actually matches perfectly the language that describes Elijah being taken up in the chariot of fire. And so we, we assume that Enoch was not one who died physically like you and I will most likely die. There's no description of how many years he lived this, that where it breaks the pattern. Enoch was not. And God took him. And so we assume that Enoch was taken directly into God's presence. Why? Because in verses 22 and 24, the author, in all of his brevity, says this thing twice, that Enoch walked with God. It's interesting that this description of how uh, God walked with people is also used in the garden. It's used of of Noah in Genesis chapter 6 verse 9. This image allows us to see that God still desires relationship with man. It's not just that his image is carried on through the line of Seth. It's now he wants to know and be with mankind. He still wants to relate to mankind. He walks with them despite their sinfulness. The final discrepancy we see is in verse 29, where the other Lamech describes what his son Noah is going to bring. In verse 29, he says, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and the painful toil of our hands. We all know what happened to Noah, right? Two by two. We all have like the, you know, the books and the play items with the animals, everything else for our kids. We know this story, and what it is, is is eventually God judges the earth by pouring out rain, 40 days, 40 nights of rain, and sure enough, God judges the sinfulness of humanity through this. But at the end of this, in chapter 8, verse 21, God promises that he'll never again curse the ground. That's what he says. He says, I will never again curse the ground because of man. And what we see is, is actually Noah 
banking on that promise. When In chapter 9, as soon as he gets out of the boat, he plants a vineyard. And so God kind of gives this promise to Noah. Noah receives this grace from God as God promises Noah, I'm never going to judge the earth like this again. You're going to find relief. In fact, an expression of that relief is that now God allows humanity to eat animals for the first time in Genesis 10. Genesis 9, I'm not sure where it is. But as an expression of this, we no longer uh, have this hardship with the ground like we had after Cain uh, and his situation. Now, uh, there's relief brought to mankind. Even here, God has a plan for kind of meeting mankind in his hardship, in his toil, in his struggle, and bringing ease to that, bringing rest. And it highlights the fact that God has a long-term plan for mankind that goes beyond the law, the flood. So what do we see here? We see that God gives us these two genealogy that head in massively different directions, right? You have the line of Cain that pushes further and further away from God and further and further into the material world that they live in. And they become masters of working with animals, masters of music, masters of, of metalworking. And the underbelly of all of that is they also become just blatantly godless, and Lamech kind of highlights that. But on the other side, we have the line of Cain that pushes closer to God. And in the midst of this, we see a God who graciously continu- continues to draw near to man. God hasn't cast man aside. God continually draws near to him. And we recognize that the same kind of draw near or drift dynamic is still at work today. I had a pastor back in the day that said this to me. He said that relationships are always static, or never static, excuse me. That there's never a relationship that you have that you're not in some way moving closer to them or further from them, right? And it's the same with our relationship with God. We, we're always moving closer or further away from, from God. We recognize this morning that as we've said already, in our sinfulness, we're always moving further and further from God as we kind of double down, as we kind of bank upon our flesh, bank upon this world, we find ourselves further and further removed from God and deeper and deeper in our sin and more and more in need of grace from Him. See, we do this drift kind of interpersonally, societally. We draw near or we drift. This morning we recognize, as we kind of step back and look at this, that you and I, we were created by God to relate to God. Ever thought about that? This is the reason you and I were created. God has consistently moved his people into deeper relationship with him throughout history. This morning we saw Enoch who walked with God. We saw Noah as one who walks with God. By the end of the book of Genesis, you're going to have Jacob who wrestles with God. Moses is going to speak to God face to face in Exodus. We have Gideon who knows the Lord. He sees the angel of the Lord and doesn't recognize him. We have Manoah and his wife, the father and mother of Samson, who are introduced to the angel of the Lord, to the pre-incarnate Christ, and don't recognize him. And so God is always showing himself to mankind in the Old Testament. Well, when we get to the New Testament, something changes. See, what happens is Jesus takes on flesh and he dwells amongst his people. He no longer just walks beside us for a little bit. 
Jesus lives in our midst for 33 years. And in the incarnation, God shows us his ongoing presence of Jesus on the earth. In fact, that's what, what it says, right? His name will be Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus' presence on the earth is evidence of his commitment to redeeming us with his presence. What I want to draw attention to this morning is a passage from John 14 that really highlights how God is present with his people. If you remember the context of this, this passage in John 14, Jesus is sitting down with his disciples and he's describing to them, hey, I'm leaving. I'm going to go to a cross. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be resurrected, but I leave you right now and someone else is coming on my behalf. The Holy Spirit will be sent. And this is what he says in, in John 14, verse 16. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you, and listen, and will be in you. Right? Notice that this Spirit, the Holy Spirit, was not to be received by just anyone. The world cannot see Him or know Him. However, this promised Spirit belongs to all who belong to Christ, who believe upon Jesus. And what He says is that He dwells with you and will be in you. No longer does God walk alongside like Enoch or like Moses. Now He comes inside and dwells inside of the believing Christian. But how? How does this happen? Well, he goes on in verses 18 through 20. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. There it is again, right? I'm in you. The Spirit is in you. The Father is with you. Why? How? This is what he says in verse 19. Because I live, you also will live. Our union with Christ through faith makes us die with him and raises us to new life with him so that you and I, if we have faith in Jesus Christ, are also crucified, are also raised from the dead so that you and I are united with Christ. And the Spirit resides in us, and Christ resides in us, and the Father resides in us as we are raised to new life with Jesus. We no longer walk with God. We are raised to new life with God. He's not finished yet. He goes on in verse 23. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Father, Son, Spirit, make their home with us. We are filled with the Holy Spirit, raised with Jesus, hidden with Christ in God. These are all statements from the New Testament about how God resides with his people. No longer one who walks alongside us. This God has entered into us. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, we are united through faith with Christ. See, while God may have walked beside Enoch, he lives inside the New Testament believer. And now the proximity of God's presence draws nearer and nearer to man until he resides in man. Now we could say that we are closer to God than Adam ever dared dream to be. We might stop and just 
reflect on this for a second and say, why does God push some away and why does he draw others nearer to himself? Right? Why, why does this happen? Why did the Cains of the world get driven from his presence and the Seths of the world get drawn closer in? And we look and we say that this is always the, the character of righteousness. When, when God comes into our midst and expresses his righteousness, it drives some farther away and draws other in based upon God's predetermined purpose. Romans 1.16 16 says that um, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And then he turns right around in verse 18, he says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That here we see this dynamic all the time. We see some men driven away and some men draw near. We're going to see this in the book of Genesis. When you fast forward and into the flood, we're going to see some men drawn near to be, into this, or be put into this boat, into this ark, and saved while others are judged we're going to see it uh, later on in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah that some men are drawn into the city and destroyed as a part of the city while Lot and his family are drawn out and saved. We see this in, in Rahab, the prostitute, when Joshua and the army comes and invades Jericho, the city. The city itself is destroyed, but Rahab and her family are drawn out and saved. Do you see this? There's this dynamic at play where God is saving and judging all at the same time. And it's because of the righteousness of God that he draws some to salvation, and it's because of his righteousness that he brings judgment to others. And we stop and we step back and we say, how do I understand this? This is almost too much for me to, to take in. We recognize it's by God's grace and his mercy that we're invited to walk with him. There's this new language in the New Testament, right? Where God says, Paul says, he says, we should walk in step with the Spirit. You and I, if we're in Christ, should have this regularity. He says in Galatians 5, he says, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, or even what Luke read this morning, that we do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So you and I are called to this life of just living in lockstep with God through the process of submitting ourselves to His Spirit. We might say, that, that sounds mystical. How's that work? How does it work for me to walk in step with the Holy Spirit? It means the simple things that you already know to do, right? We walk in step in the Spirit when we pray. We walk in step with the Spirit when we soak in the Word of God. We walk in step with the Spirit when we fellowship with one another. We walk in step with Spirit when we say no to the sinful nature and we say yes to communion with God and His Spirit. And so the question we started with this morning, how do we know that we know that we're right with God? Or better stated, how do I know that God knows me? See, we know that we know because we walk with God. It's the daily, moment-by-moment -moment mindfulness of God's real presence in my life. 
It's this submission, moment by moment, to the priorities of God in the Spirit. It's the submission to the things of Christ. That's how I know that I'm right with God. There might be a tendency for some of us where we, we, we leave the building on a Sunday and we don't pick up our Bible or think anything about God's design for us until the following Sunday. Uh, we, we might just go about our workaday life not thinking anything about what God's design for me is or what implications that has for the way that I live my life. But the Christian is going to be one who considers the things of God. We might say, well, what about other things? You know, what about my morality? What about the good things I do? Don't that, doesn't that prove that I'm right with God? The good things that I do, the good works, you know, the things that I, I do, the, what I perform, where I help out with the old ladies who cross the street, you know, uh, the extra hours that I put in at work just to help someone else out, those good things I do, they should show that I'm right with God, right? Remember in, in Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus comes to these people, and he said, many will come to me at this last day, and they'll say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? Didn't we do many miracles in your name? And he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. That it's not the good things we do necessarily that, that point to our right life with God. In fact, we might think about the Shriners. Shriners are, are people who do all kinds of good things, but they may or may not have a relationship with God. Right? We see all of these charities funded by various secular people do good things, but are they right with God? We don't know. What about my right theology? Does my right theology save me? The things that I think about God, the theology test that I could pass, does that show that I'm right with God and so I have a standing with God? Well, James says that even the demons believe and they shudder. Demons might have the best theology of any of us here this morning. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're trusting. See, this truth is true this morning for us. The distinction is palpable. That when we know someone who walks with God, it stands out, doesn't it? You ever have that relationship? You meet somebody who's really, you can obviously tell that they've spent time in God's presence. It stands out. It's so true and real. It's undeniable. You ever find that person? See, the life of the Christian is the Bible says it's like the aroma of life or death to those that we are around. You know, to some, it's the aroma of life. It's, it's when the Christian lives in your midst. It, it reminds you of the sweetness and goodness of God in Christ. It, it brings to mind the story of the gospel, the provision of God in Christ. But that same person who goes to work and interacts with his coworker, it's like the aroma of death to them. It reminds them that judgment is coming and that God is going to judge the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. You know, in this passage this morning in Genesis 4, we see Jabal and Jubal and Tubal-Cain and all of these people, they're producing good things, but they, they never actually walk with God. And we recognize this morning that we as Christians have to be those who are marked by God's presence with us. Uh, next Sunday, we'll do our vision night. And one of the things that we really want to press into in 2020 is this idea of communing with God. 
of actually being present with God or God being present with us. And it's not just this idea of I know all the right things about God. I understand all of the theological principles. It's the idea of I am connected with God in Christ, that his spirit lives in me and I enjoy the presence of God in my life. I actually submit to that purposefully. I recognize the need for the Christian to do exactly that. I want to pray this morning as we close. I want to pray that God makes us a people that are marked by God's presence in us. And I I don't want it just to be another thing that we pray. But I want to just stop and linger here for a second. So I'm going to leave maybe 30 seconds of just silence for us just to kind of take in what we've talked about. For you to pray silently in your chairs, to ask God for a sense of his weight that you would allow you uh, to commune with him. And then I'll close us in prayer. Let's go to God here this morning. Father, there's something about a discussion about your dwelling with your people that is intimidating. It's intimidating because we don't control it. We're recipients of it. That you have made it happen in us through our faith in Christ. It's intimidating because we recognize that it means that all of those sinful tendencies we have stand in opposition to you. They need to be eradicated. So God, I pray that you would allow us, by your grace, to be a people who commune with you, who walk with you, who enjoy the joy of your presence. Lord, I pray that for myself this morning. I pray, God, that you would give me a rich communion with you. That we might sense the goodness and mercy that you have for us as we linger in your word or linger in prayer. That you might affirm that we are your children by your spirit. That's what you promise in your word, right? It's by your spirit that you confirm with our spirit that we are your children. So God, we ask these very things. We ask that you would allow us to to know you deeply. As Paul says, to know you in, in the fellowship of your suffering, that we might also be united with you in your resurrection from the dead. Lord, we pray, God, that you would allow us this mystical union, that we would be As Peter says, partakers of the divine nature, that we would mingle with you in Christ, enjoy the sweetness of relationship with you.
pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.